Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we come to the end of an era as we discuss the final story of William Hartnell's run on Doctor Who, The Tenth Planet. As always, we will be discussing the Doctor himself, the companions, the villains, and giving our thoughts and score out of five for the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story, and any other story from the William Hartnell era. So to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teampproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1. At the International Space Command launch facility, the Zeus-4 manned atmospheric probe has just taken off on its maiden flight. After it successfully leaves Earth's orbit, communication with the crew is switched over to the snow-capped monitoring station in Antarctica. Outside the facility, the TARDIS lands and the crew have dressed appropriately for the harsh weather. Ben and Polly are eager to explore outside, but the Doctor advises them to be cautious, as they have no idea what dangers may be outside. Their arrival has not gone unnoticed by the base personnel, who spot the two young travellers through the exterior periscopes. A security team is sent out and the trio are then escorted back into the base. Once inside, they are questioned by the security chief, but he doesn't believe their answers about arriving the TARDIS. He sends for the commanding officer of the station, General Cutler, but he has already arrived. He is incredulous at their presence and seems reluctant to believe the Doctor's assurance that they mean them no harm. After the Doctor comments on his rude manner, Cutler insults his appearance and orders them to be locked up so he can deal with them later. He then goes back to the control room. The trio are escorted to a holding area by the security chief and the Doctor notices a calendar on the wall informing the travellers that they are in 1986, dashing Ben and Polly's hopes that they are being returned to England. Ben comments that this might be the reason why there seems to be a reduced staff at the station due to most of the work being done by computers. As the security chief is telling them of the purpose of the station, a distress call comes in from the probe, informing them that something is pulling them off course. One of the pilots is told to use Mars as a locational guideline to give their exact coordinates, but instead he sees a planet that neither he nor his co-pilot recognise, but still looks oddly familiar. They attempt to send images back of the planet to the snowcap, but the signal is steadily failing and they also notice their fuel cells are being drained. The Doctor has been observing all that has been going on and requests an audience with Cutler as he knows what they will see on the transmitted image. Cutler, however, brushes off this offer of help, bearing allowed the Doctor time to pass on his notes to Barclay, the chief scientist at the station. Barclay then tries to contact the probe, but again finds it difficult due to the steady signal loss. They attempt to guide the probe back to Earth's orbit, but it is completely caught within the new planet's gravitational field as it continues to come closer to Earth. Barclay goes to the Doctor for assistance in trying to rescue the probe, and shows him and the others an image of the new planet. After staring at the planet for a few minutes, they notice that it looks like an inverted version of Earth, with the landmasses upside down. The Doctor then tells Barclay to look at the note that he has given him earlier, and he sees that the Doctor correctly predicted the planet's appearance. He starts to explain the origin of the planet, but Cutler storms off ordering a call to be put through to Security General Wigner in Geneva. After he leaves, the Doctor informs Ben and Polly that he knows what the arrival of the planet means for Earth and that they should be receiving visitors very shortly. Cutler returns, having been ordered by Wigner to find out everything the Doctor claims to know about the planet. He also orders the security chief to search the TARDIS. Outside, a strange ship lands just as the security patrol goes out to the TARDIS. Upon finding the door locked, the chief orders his subordinates to go inside and retrieve a cutting torch. After one of them leaves, several robotic-looking figures approach the security chief who demands to know who they are, opening fire on them when they do not answer. His bullets seem to have no effect on them and they kill him. They also kill his subordinates after they come out again with a cutting torch. One of them reaches down to remove the soldier's clothing, revealing that they are not fully robotic as they have organic components as well. 
Episode 2 The aliens put on the winter coats of the dead soldiers and begin to make their way inside. Their bodies are mostly metallic with a control panel of some sort on the front and they also have some sort of helmet with a light in the centre of it. Inside the station, Cutler states his disbelief of the doctor's statement that they will soon have visitors and goes back to the command room to try and aid in the retrieval of the probe. While this is going on, Wigner is trying to contact the base but to no avail as there is some sort of interference blocking all communications with it. The arrival of the new planet has become worldwide news and he wants answers as to what is going on. In the command room, the doctor is trying to get Cutler and Barkley to listen to him but his protests are cut short by the arrival of the aliens. They kill several guards using light cannons and take control of the command room. Cutler says that they need to try and retrieve the pilots but an alien replies in a strange synthesized voice from a motionless metal face that there is no saving them and it is useless to try. He informs everyone that he and his people are called Cybermen and that they are the inhabitants of the new planet which he calls Mondas. Barclay comments that this used to be an ancient name for Earth and the Cyberman tells him that eons ago Mondas and Earth were in twinned orbit but Mondas slipped out of orbit and drifted to the furthest edge of the solar system. The lifespans of the inhabitants of the planet grew much shorter as time went on and so their scientists developed a way to cybernetically upgrade the people in order to sustain them. Over time, these enhancements removed all emotions and senses, leaving the Cybermen to operate via cold hard logic. As he is talking, Cutler presses an emergency button that sends a distress signal to Geneva. Unfortunately, the signal is too weak to respond to directly as all power systems on Earth are fading due to the approach of Mondas. So Wigner tells the communications centre to respond to Snowcap Station using the microlink array. Back at Snowcap, Cutler is incapacitated after refusing to say everything is okay. Barkley also refuses and so the Cybermen try a different tactic by holding the communications with the probe hostage. Left with no other choice, Barkley responds to Wigner saying that it was a reactor fault. Barkley then tries to get in contact with the probe but the Cyberman says it is futile. He then orders the dead soldiers to be moved and Ben says that they should make a run for it. The doctor says it won't work but Ben reaches for one of the dead soldiers weapons but is stopped by the Cybermen and locked into the projector room. The Cyberman then informs the rest of the humans that for all intents and purposes, resistance is futile. His, his statements about the probe also prove to be correct as it is torn apart while trying to leave the gravitational pull of Mondas. The Cyberman then informs the others that once Mondas arrives it will begin to siphon energy away from Earth, leading to its eventual desolation and that he intends to take them all back to Mondas for conversion into Cybermen. In the projector room, Ben manages to escape by turning off the lights and luring the Cyberman guard into the room. He then turns on the projector, blinding the guard and giving him enough time to disarm him. He tries to coerce the guard into following his commands, but he is forced to kill him as he tries to attack Ben, an act that seems to traumatise him. He then sneaks back into the command room as the Doctor and Polly argue with the Cyberman about his people's cold-hearted nature leading to the deaths of millions of humans. He hands the light cannon to a revived Cutler who uses it to kill the remaining Cybermen. The Doctor laments that he did this as they lost their only source of information about Mondas. Cutler ignores the sentiment and gets through to Geneva where Wigner tells him to hold out against any threat as Snowcap is required to assist the rescue ship that was dispatched to save the probe crew before it was destroyed. Cutler is horrified to find out that his own son Terry is the pilot of the rescue ship but maintains his professionalism as he distributes orders to the remaining personnel. The Doctor doesn't share his confidence that the base's security forces and defensive weaponry are capable of stopping the Cybermen but again Cutler disdainfully ignores him. Polly comments on the fact that he seems to be relishing the thought of a fight and he informs them that he now has a personal stake in the unfolding events. Before they can say any more, a radar operator calls out that hundreds of Cybermen ships are inbound. Episode 3 As Cutler issues orders to prepare for the incoming fleet, the Doctor suddenly collapses to the ground and is immediately seen to by Ben, Polly and Barclay. Cutler irritatedly tells them to take him to a room whilst he goes and communicates with the rescue ship. 
Polly notes that the doctor just seems to be worn out as he has fallen into a deep sleep. However, once he is situated in the bed, she and Ben return to the command room. Cutler, meanwhile, tries to maintain a level of professional distance and does not tell his son the fate of the, the previous probe. Instead, he says that they need to focus their energies on getting him back to Earth. Cutler then addresses the base personnel and states that the only solution to their problem is to destroy Mondas with the use of something called a Z-bomb. Barclay says that Wigner will never allow the use of the Z-bomb as it could irradiate Earth's atmosphere. This is proven to be true, but Wigner refuses to give permission to use the bomb until the effects of it can be calculated by the foremost scientific minds in the field. Not to be deterred though, Cutler asks for permission to carry out any action deemed necessary to stop the invasion, to which Wigner agrees. He then uses this to convince Barclay and the others that he has been given the permission he needs to launch the bomb. Ben objects to this and Cutler orders him to be locked up, but Ben states that doctors believe that Mondas will eventually destroy itself due to consuming too much of Earth's energy too rapidly. Cutler again ignores this and says that he intends to hasten Mondas's demise with the Z-bomb. Barclay tries to use Cutler's son's life as leverage to convince him not to use the bomb, but Cutler instead orders him to program the bomb to detonate once his son is in the clear. As Ben is being taken away, he tells Polly to try and convince Barclay to help them as he seems to be sympathetic towards their goals. She asks Cutler if she can remain behind to help, presenting herself as a ditz only good for making coffee, to which he agrees before leaving to oversee the priming of the Z-bomb. Polly then begins to work on Barclay, asking him the potential effects of the bombing of Mondas. He says that Mondas could go supernova and the resulting blast of radiation could irreparably damage Earth's ecosystem. Polly tries to convince him to go with the Doctor's plan of holding out against the Cybermen until Mondas burns itself out. Barclay is unsure about this, but then seems to come around when Polly suggests pretending to proceed with the programming of the bomb. Before they can discuss it any further, Cutler returns and is told that the Cybermen fleet has stopped moving. He orders the base to go to Red Alert battle stations and goes to check on the bomb's progress. Polly and Barclay then go to check on Ben, who is currently trying to escape through the ventilation system. He tells them that the base's medical officer has said the Doctor is alright, but he is still asleep, and then asks how they can stop the bomb. Barclay says the bomb room is guarded, but Ben could gain entry via the ventilation ducts. He then instructs Ben on how to sabotage the bomb's launching rockets. The Cybermen fleet begins to land and the base's security forces begin their defence, using the captured weapons from the dead Cybermen. They repel the first wave and collect more weapons to distribute to the base personnel. Meanwhile, Ben successfully manages to gain access to the bomb room, whilst Polly pretends to be him for when the guards come to check the room. Barclay arrives outside the bomb room to distract any of the technicians from going in, but his absence from the command room is noticed by Cutler, who goes to look for him. He goes into the bomb room and sees Ben tampering with the launching rockets. He sneaks up on Ben and then throws him over the guardrail to the floor below. He then orders the guards to take Ben back to the command room whilst he escorts Barclay back, threatening him if he has caused any danger to his son's life. He then speaks to his son and says that they are working on rescuing him. Barclay then begins a two-minute countdown for the bomb launch and Ben starts to come to, but he cannot remember if he succeeded in sabotaging the launching rockets. Episode 4 The bomb fails to launch and Cutler accuses the travellers of being in league with the Cybermen, telling Ben to bring the Doctor out so he can have them both executed for treason. However, the Doctor appears and announces that Cutler's scheme has failed. He then tells the others that he is fine, but he feels like his body is wearing a bit thin. Cutter then threatens Barclay in order to force him to repair the launch rockets, but is distracted by an incoming message from his son. He informs them that Mondas seems to be experiencing large power surges causing the plant to brighten and darken rapidly. However, his transmission cuts out and Cutler demands that the contact be re-established, ignoring messages from the radar operator saying a second wave of Cyberman ships have landed outside the base. Cutler's sanity seems to have completely snapped as he accuses the Doctor of causing his son's death. Before he can take his revenge, a group of Cybermen enter the room and kill him before ordering everyone else to surrender. 
Ben makes a comment about the Cybermen being ungrateful after they helped save Mondas and the Doctor explains to the Cybermen how they sabotaged the bomb. He then offers sanctuary on Earth to the Cybermen and he tells them that Mondas will destroy itself. The Cybermen refuse to consider the offer until the bomb is fully disarmed and removed to below ground level. The Doctor urges Barkley to follow through on this plan as it will buy the Earth more time as Mondas would edge closer to destruction. However, the Cybermen insist that they take Polly as a hostage to ensure the humans do as they said. Ben objects to this, but the Doctor says for him to go with help Barkley with the bomb and he will ensure Polly's safety. The Cybermen agree to return Polly once the bomb is disarmed, but once she is brought aboard the ship, she is rendered unconscious. Wiener calls True to the base and informs the Doctor of that multiple cities have been invaded by the Cybermen. As he is talking, Cybermen enter the room and take control of the communications with the base. The two Cybermen discuss the plan to evacuate their forces and the Doctor realises that they have been tricked and that the Cybermen intend to destroy Earth in order to save Mondas. He then relays this information to the group disarming the bomb. As they are working, Ben begins to think on something that he noticed about the Cybermen. Despite their advanced strength and scientific capabilities, the Cybermen insisted that the humans be the one to disarm the bomb, a process that could have been done in half the time by the Cybermen. He also points out that the Cybermen remain outside the bomb room and only observe through the door window. Bartley agrees with Ben and says that the Cybermen might be susceptible to the radiation in the room. Ben lures the guard into the room, where he is rendered immobile long enough for Ben to disarm him, and then forces him back outside. One of the other technicians says that they could have escaped, but Ben and Bartley explain that as long as they are inside, the Cybermen can't enter, and so they can buy extra time for Mondas to disintegrate. The Doctor points out the stalemate to the Cybermen, and so they offer to take the humans with them to Mondas to save them for when the Earth is destroyed, but Ben and Bartley decline the offer and demand that their friends be released. The Cybermen refuse and order the Doctor to be taken to their ship, giving Ben an ultimatum of either disarming the bomb or never seeing his friends again. Ben asks Barkley and the other technicians if there is anything radioactive in the room that is portable enough for him to carry with him. They manage to extract two irradiated control rods from one of the computers and lay in wait for the Cybermen to fulfil their ultimatum. However, the Cybermen start to gas the room, forcing Ben to open the door so that he and the others can take the fight to the enemy. Using the control rods and the stolen light cannon, they manage to fight their way clear but at the loss of one of their own. They go back to the control room to find it empty of Cybermen. Barkley uses one of the Cybermen's discarded communications devices to summon them back from their ship so they can attempt to rescue the Doctor and Polly. As the Cybermen enter the room, their attention is drawn to the monitor showing Mondas beginning to disintegrate. The Cybermen then fall apart as their energy source no longer exists. The rescue ship then messages the base, all of its power functions back up to 100%, requesting aid in returning to Earth. Barkley then communicates with Wegner to discover that all the remaining Cybermen forces on Earth have suffered the same fate as those at the base. Ben then rushes off to rescue Polly and the Doctor, who has again fallen into a deep sleep. The duo manage to rouse him, saying that the threat is over, but he seems incoherent, saying that it is far from over and he must return to the TARDIS at once. He rushes off ahead of the others and locks the TARDIS door behind him. He then starts to sway again, as if he has come over all faint, but before he collapses, he opens the door for Ben and Polly to come in and also begins the dematerialization process. Polly goes to help him, but Ben holds her back as they watch as the Doctor's body suddenly glows with an unearthly bright light and begins to change before their eyes. As the light fades, they see that where the Doctor once was is now an entirely different looking younger man. End of the story. Now... I am going to have a little cry in the corner because William Hartnell is no longer the Doctor and I'll hand you over to Trish for the trivia section. 
<laughs> Thank you, Patty. So the air date for this story was the 8th of October 1966 to the 29th of October 1966. The writers for the story were Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis. So Dr. Christopher Kit Magnus Howard Pedler was a medical scientist, a science writer and a science fiction writer. He was originally hired as the scientific consultant for the show to bring some true science to this science fiction program. This was the first of three shows that he wrote, the other two being The Moon Base and The Tomb of the Cybermen. However, he also contributed the story idea to The War Machines, which we discussed last two weeks ago, The Wheel in Space and The Invasion. I'm sensing a theme with this guy. <laughs> yeah, there is a small bit of a theme, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Kid passed away back in 1981. Jerry Davis was the Doctor Who script editor from 1966 to 1967. According to Annika Wills, who played Polly, he was the one who came up with the idea of regeneration as a way to replace Bill Hartnell. This is the first of four Doctor Who writing credits for Jerry. His others include The Highlanders, The Tomb of the Cybermen, and Revenge of the Cybermen. Again, a little bit of a theme. Jerry passed away back in 1991. The director for the story is Derek Martinus. This is the third story we've seen from Derek. His previous stories were Galaxy 4... Eh. and Mission to the Unknown. Very good. We still have three more stories of his to come. The Evil of the Daleks, The Ice Warriors, and Spearhead from Space. A nice mix of stories there, I think. Absolutely. And as well, those are three stories that have three famous uh, Who villains. So he's kind of spread out nicely. This story currently has one missing episode. That is episode four. Though the BBC has released on DVD and I think on streaming platforms as well an animated version of this missing episode. So if you were to buy the 10th Planet on DVD and you played all of the episodes in order it'll give you a animated version of episode 4. But what an episode to be fucking missing. (laughs) I know. However, some footage of the missing episode 4 including the regeneration sequence did survive as a result of Blue Peter. Again, it was shown on Blue Peter, therefore, yeah. it wasn't burned from their archives, it was only burned from the Doctor Who archive. Yeah, and I, it, it's it's the one saving grace, I suppose, of the of the whole first regeneration experience. That, like, no, the quality of it wasn't great, from what I can yeah. remember, but at least that component survived. Because can you imagine not having, like, whatever about not having the last episode, can you imagine not having the actual f- first regeneration? Yeah, and like, I would recommend that if you're watching it on DVD or whatever, that watch the animated version, because it's really good, but then do go into like the special features and you should be able to watch the actual proper clip. I think the VHS version used like telesnaps and the little bits of video that they had. Mm. So I would recommend watching that just so you can actually see the regeneration of William Hartnell and Pat Troughton. It's done really, really well because, like, I remember I first saw it on YouTube, the regeneration sequence, and yeah. yeah, it's like there are times where I'm fascinated by the camera trickery of like the older period of like cinema and stuff like that. Like, uh, one movie that I loved growing up was um, Claude Rains, The Invisible Man, back in the 1930s, and like how yeah. they did that fascinated me. So, like, with this. I love the whole overlay and like the bright light and then like just everything like just watch it watch it people 
<laughs> yeah, I I may give you a loan of my Tenth Planet DVD, Paddy, because in the making of documentary, uh, the person who did that special effect actually describes how she did it. Nice. And the others just said that it was like watching magic appear on screen because you're taking input from two different cameras and putting it through this sort of third filter type thing to distort them and apparently the key to making the regeneration work Hmm. was that William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton who's taking over have similar cheekbones so she lined up their cheekbones and that's what allowed the whole thing to work and not look super weird they actually do and now that we've kind of I'm kind of going to go out on a limb here okay and that we're, we're now introduced to the, in the concept of regeneration. Mm. Visually, I think that this is possibly, until the revival, one of the best regeneration sequences, if not the best regeneration sequence. I don't know. I've always been a fan of Doc John to Doc Tom. That is good, but I don't think it's... Uh, personally, I don't think it's as good as this one. I don't think it's as seamless because their faces aren't yeah, as similar. Yeah, that, that, that's, yeah, I think that's what it is for me. It's, the, it's the, just the seamlessness of the whole process. Yeah. Speaking of regeneration, so this is obviously the first regeneration that we see on screen, but it won't actually get the name regeneration until that Doc John to Doc Tom changeover. They don't call it that. You're right, they don't. They don't. E- mm. Even from uh, Patrick Troughton's one, they, they never refer to it as regeneration. I think they just say no. it's change. You may have noticed from Paddy's summary that William Hartnell did not appear in episode three. Now, usually when I say that, I say that the person was on holidays. That was not the case this time around. After filling episode two, Bill collapsed and was diagnosed with bronchitis. And so he had to take time off to rest. So he sent a telegram to the production company on the Monday of when they should have been filming episode three so jerry davis rewrote the script to explain the doctor's absence by having him collapse that was done by a stand-in and then he gave his dialogue to other characters which is why ben suddenly mentions this idea of mondas going to implode (laughs) that we didn't actually hear mentioned earlier yeah um but that's where that came from that was meant to be the doctor's line and he gave it to ben and some of his more technical lines were given to barkley so they split out his lines between everyone else to keep the story flowing and one of the things i've seen online is that apparently it actually wasn't that hard which is a bit of a kick in the teeth really that it wasn't that hard to to write around him not being there well no it's a bit of a kick in the teeth in that sense of that like if they managed to do it this easily for him, why could the fuck couldn't they have done it this easily for other people in the show? Yeah. At yeah. various points of time. So this is the only TV story to give the Cybermen characters individual names. They have actual names. Their names are a bit stupid. They're like Krang and something else. Because right, they're not they're not set on screen. I'm like no, but if if you um if you watch the episode with subtitles on, I. Uh, it gives like the the name with the colon and, oh, and who's right. speaking. Oh right, yeah. Because I was about to say like between going like yo the Cybermen, the Cyberman says this and the Cybermen say this. Yeah. No, it might. And obviously in the credits they're credited as yeah. individual people. After this, it becomes like Cyber Leader and Cyber Controller and, yeah. and stuff like that. The first Doctor's last words are a bit underwhelming, shall we say? Hmm. Joe, you know, it's not like a tear, Sarah Jane. Like it's not, it's not something like that. It's not. I don't want to go. It's. I hope you're warm enough, or something like that. You know, it's stay warm. 
Um, originally, it was meant to be, no, no, I simply will not give in. And it sort of has a very tenant ring to it in the sense of, it sounds like he didn't want to regenerate. He wanted to stay as Bill Hartnell. Hmm. But Derek Martin, as the director, was conscious of time. And obviously because the regeneration filming, I mean, that was a new thing they were making up as they went. He was really conscious of getting that done. So he decided not to film the line. So the last line is something about stay warm. But can you just hear Hartnell saying that line? In, yeah. in, the, in the very like the way Aztecs you know like you know, no you can't change history not one line it's like no yeah. I will simply not give in yeah I I'm really gutted that they didn't record it because I think that would have been brilliant mm. the snow that was used in the story <laughs> was not the easiest thing to work in uh, it made it difficult to see particularly for the Cybermen who already had issues with visibility you couldn't speak without it going into your mouth and it made it very difficult to breathe mm. It was particularly troubling, though, for Michael Craze, because he had recently had surgery to remove a bone chip from his nose, during which he had a burst blood vessel that nearly killed him. And the show, or the snow that they used on the show, was irritating his nose, which was still kind of recovering Mm. from that surgery. So he had a terrible time in the snow on the show. Okay, tied to Vanta are cast. So, as Barclay, we have David Dottimede, only Doctor Who acting credit for David. His other acting credits include Paul of Tarsus, Love Labour's Lost, Julius Caesar, The Pirates of Penzance, The Mikado, Zedkars, Richard II, Henry VIII, and Jane Eyre. David passed away in 1996. As Cutler Sr., so General Cutler, mm-hmm. we have Robert Beatty. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Robert. His other acting credits include 49th Parallel, A Matter of Life and Death, Tales of Hans Anderson, The Invisible Man, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The New Avengers, Pink Panther Strikes Again, Blake Seven, and Paddy. Where Eagles Dare. I'm delighted yeah. with this because I know actually know who he is. He plays uh, Cartwright Jones, who's uh, he's, he's integral, well, yeah, he's integral to the plot of the movie. And it's, it's uh, really cool to kind of see him in this, but he plays a vastly different character. Whereas in Pringles there, he's like, all right, cool. He's just there. Whereas in this one, he's an asshole. An asshole. Yeah, maybe when COVID finally goes the way of the Dodo, yeah. uh, you and I should watch where he goes there and you can... Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you can share the wonder of your one of your favorite movies with me. Robert passed away back in 1992. Glyn Williams, who was one of the astronauts, is played by Earl Cameron. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Earl. And we mentioned last week that the gentleman who played Jamaica was maybe the first speaking part for yes. a black character in Doctor Who. This would make Earl Cameron the second speaking part. Mm-hmm. And Earl has said himself that he thinks he was one of the first black actors to play an astronaut bear in mind this is set in 1966 the moon landing hadn't even happened yet yeah no granted, granted the story is is based in it's set in nineteen eighty four, but it was created in 1966 yeah. and in interviews earl has said that when his agent told him you know you got the role in doctor who as an astronaut he didn't believe them because he didn't believe that a black man could be cast as an astronaut hmm. which I think is, you know, we've talked about 
is Doctor Who progressive or not in the 60s. It's one of the things I like about this story and I'll get to it in my overall is that they deliberately had an international cast. Yeah. Which given the future setting of the story I think is very very good. Well I think they had an international cast still played by English people but they they had because there's an Italian soldier in it that I don't think is actually Italian. No but I think I think I think um, I'll have to look him up. I think Alan White is actually like Australian or something. Right. Anyway, so Earl's other acting credits include, again, Paul of Tarsus, Danger Man, The Andromeda Breakthrough, Thunderball, The Prisoner, Jack and Ori, The Queen and Inception. Earl passed away just a few months ago, actually, in July of 2020. And at the time of this recording, he was the longest lived cast member, being 102 when he passed away. Jesus. Dan Bluey Schultz was the other astronaut and he's played by Alan White. Now again, I think he's meant to be like Australian or mm. New Zealandy or something just based on his accent. I don't know if Alan actually is. I probably should have checked that. My apologies. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Alan. His other acting credits include The, Pris- <laughs> the Prisoner, United, Tell It to the Marines and The Flying Doctor. Alan passed away back in 2013. This is our final story for Bill Hartnell, as we have said. Apparently, during the filming of The Smugglers, which we said last week, even though it was the first story of season four, it was actually filmed at the end of season three. The production team realised that Bill's health had deteriorated beyond the point where he could continue to work. Now, on the DVD of this story, Annika Wilkes describes what Bill was like at that time. And how he essentially fought tooth and nail to keep the job. Hmm. He did not want to go and he just fought so hard to keep doing what he was doing. And it's one of the reasons why sometimes things were incredibly tense on set and things like that. But eventually, over the break between the smugglers and the Tenth Planet, Inns Lloyd decided not to renew Hartnell's contract. And Bill accepted that as that was going to happen. Apparently this made Bill really introspective, I suppose you could say, when filming. He knew it was his last story and he wanted it to be perfect, which is why I think it's really sad that he missed episode three because of falling ill. Mm. But like apparently they were filming or they were rehearsing in this like, I don't know if it was like a church hall or something and it had like a ping pong table and no one was allowed to play with the ping pong table because it was distracting Bill <laughs> and he had to stay focused and in character. Apparently he was quite difficult to work with on that last story though I think that's understandable. Hmm. Do you know? Yeah, no, I, I would agree. The one person though that we know Bill actually was very pleasant with was actually Patrick Troughton who took over as the second Doctor and by the way, We'll go into Patrick Troughton when we discuss his first proper stories, why I haven't given him a section yeah. on Prince oh, yeah, 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 of course. So, apparently, again, apparently Bill was quite proud that someone of Patrick Troughton's calibre was taking over from him. And there wasn't any sort of animosity between the two. They were very gentlemanly when they met. And like I remember like the first time I ever heard that, a small sceptical part of me thought it was just William Hartnell being very magnanimous and stepping away from the thing. But I've heard nothing other nothing other 
then the two really respected each other and he was very, very, as you said, very happy that Patrick Shaw was taken over, which is nice. Yeah, he's reported to have said, if there's one man in England who can replace me as the Doctor, it's Patrick Troughton. Hmm. Um, which I think is lovely because we have seen some handovers over the years that were maybe a bit tense. Yes. Uh, I know Elizabeth Sladen said that like the changeover from John Pertwee to Tom Baker was a bit awkward. Because mm-hmm. you lie down there and then you stand up and another man in your clothes lies down. Yeah. And it's a bit weird, but no, he didn't have that issue. We will get to see Bill on screen again, though. Yes. He will return for the show's 10th anniversary story, The Three Doctors. But sadly, he passed away three years after that. So The Three Doctors will be the last time we see William Hartnell as the first Doctor. And we'll see it at the end of the episode as well. But for the 50th anniversary, a a drama documentary or a... Docudrama. Docudrama was made about the first three years of the show, focusing uh, on Hartnell. And we'll talk about it later on. But if you liked William Hartnell's run and you liked everything that we've discussed in terms of the trivia and stuff behind it, we'd definitely recommend to check it out. Definitely. So now we're on to the meat and bones of Time Travelling Team, mm-hmm. which is our character discussion. Now, usually we put the Doctor first. Yes. And then we do the companions and then we do the villains. And when we've had companions leave, we do the exiting companion last in the companions section. Mm. However, this week it is the Doctor himself who is leaving. So what we're going to do is we'll do the companions first then the villains, and then we'll circle back around to the Doctor at the end and give him a little bit more time for discussion at the end. So, Paddy, skipping over the Doctor for now, we have our companions. So we have Ben and Polly, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, Barkley kind of helps them out throughout the story as well. Yeah. So who would you like to start with for your discussion? I suppose we'll do the regular companions first, and then we can move on to story-based. So... I have been down first, right? And now, I know that with the, the action man character, there is the tendency for, you know, the sort of the gung-ho-ness, you know, let's dive headfirst into a situation. Yeah. With Ben, something happens in this story that I think puts him above the rest. He gave me no choice. It's what Ben says after he kills the Cyberman guard. That's... Ben is Ben is a naval well he's not an officer but Ben is a naval personnel he's a naval shipman so he obviously he will be at times required to get into conflict if conflict does arise but the fact that he doesn't seek it out or the fact that he doesn't take any pleasure in you know killing someone or something it speaks volumes about him and it adds another great dimension to Ben's character and you know I think we we, yeah, we discussed it earlier on like that as much as we like you know we loved Ian and we always said that Ian never killed unless he had to. We've never actually seen Ian show remorse at having killed someone. Yeah, and I I completely agree with you on this for Ben. I think Ben has no issue knocking someone out or like getting in a fist fight or whatever. That's fine. But the idea of killing someone, it affects him in a big way. And in terms of what we see with the Doctor going forward... Of the Doctor doesn't like weapons and stuff like that. Hmm. 
This is probably the most Doctor Who reaction a companion has had. Do you know? Yeah. This idea of there was no choice, but I wanted a better way. There had to have been a better way. Yeah. And I think it's great that we get that from Ben because I love Ian to infinity and beyond. I always will. But he was very much the action man. Yeah. And he killed people. We know he did. He threw people off the top of pyramids. He, you know, he has killed people in his time. And we never, no, on screen, admittedly, we never saw him feeling guilty for that because A, he's a bit older than Ben. And maybe he realized it had to be done. And maybe he internalized that conversation. But to hear someone, to hear the action man say it yeah. out loud because you made the reference here to uh, Ian throwing Ixta off the top of the pyramid and yeah. we see his face like we see a bit of a shocked yeah. look on his face but there's no dialogue to go along with it this is yeah. the this is the next step in that thing so while Ian may have been remorseful and he may like across with his face it might have just been shock of oh my god I won or oh you know he's dead I didn't mean for that to happen whatever that is Ben vocalises it and so, therefore, I think Ben is trumps Ian in that regards. Yeah, um, I'd agree. And I, I think it's a case of like, it's it's an it's an evolution of the action man character, like because traveling with the Doctor requires a certain level of restraint for situations. And mm-hmm. like again, like I think, I, looking back, like Ian has shown like remarkable restraint at times, and he's shown great knowledge. Yeah. And unfortunately, when we got to Stephen it was the polar opposite and now I think we seem to be marrying the two we have the younger character that is actually a trained action person Mm. but going with the level of restraint and understanding of how things work that Ian had yeah and again like you know he's a young he's a young guy so he's another perfect gateway character for a younger audience watching the show and like you know the fact that he's serving in Her Majesty's uh, Royal Navy is that the sort of a thing that you know that a lot of young boys would you know kind of like aspire to be and that type of thing. Um, I also love like you know again his interactions with the Doctor are great because you get the impression mm-hmm. like that himself and the Doctor there won't be as much butting of heads, and like they'll never yeah. they'll never be science bros, but at least they'll be you know able to respect one another. And again, his interactions with Polly are great. I like that he, again while he may call her duchess and he may kind of rip her a small bit his intent is always to make sure that both her and the doctor are okay yeah I would agree and like one of the things that just going back to the whole Ben and violence thing for a second because it it really can't be overstated like it's such a such a brilliant character building moment I absolutely loved it and you know we've said it makes him very different from Stephen now we know that Stephen is a pilot yeah we never knew what type of pilot he was. Was he a commercial pilot? Was he a fighter pilot? Was he a military pilot or whatever? And I think what gives Ben the edge over Stephen... Because I mentioned this last week. That Ben did body slam someone last week. Yeah. And I was curious to see if they were going to do it like Stephen. And I'm so glad that they didn't. Hmm. Stephen was very much... He was a space cowboy. Yeah. Or he wanted to be a space cowboy. Mm. Do you know, whereas I think what stabilizes Ben is the fact that yeah, Ben is young, so he's still he's still impulsive, he's still a bit brash. Yeah, that Stephen had, but his training in the navy 
helps temper that. So what Ian got from age and maturity, Ben has got from training and experience. Which I think is it's a really lovely dynamic. But we also said last week as well that there's a there's a, a difference between the, the two tackling scenarios. Because yeah. Ben was in the murder location for which they were accused of being and a guy comes out of the yeah. secret tunnel. So yeah. yeah. But no, um I think that with a new companion, we now have three stories because like he's we saw him in the yeah, episode one of The War Machines. That we've three stories now of fan- of a great consistent action man character, or just a yeah. great and just a character in general. If you want to remove the action man label from him, there's just three really good things of consistent. So when we do eventually get to Ben's rambling, even if everything else goes tits up, we still have these three really good character arcs. Yeah, one one of the things I like about Ben as well is like I kind of joked about it last week that like is Ben in the navy because he never mentions it. <laughs> yeah. But here we have him in a military situation. Yeah. And immediately he's like, yeah, up, you know, upright shoulders back, uh, upright when, shoulders back, whatever. Yeah. And then when, <laughs> when he's asked like, so why are you away from your ship? He kind of goes, oh, and he kind of deflates <laughs> a bit. And it's like, I can't fucking explain that, can I? Yeah, Shit. Yeah. And that's good because it's keeping that as much as I joke about it, you know, in terms of him constantly fucking mentioning it. But at least they're keeping that part of who he is yeah whereas with steven he was this survivor and we've got about it other things about ben is again and this may be coming from military training we see that he's a good leader yeah you know he's taking control of the situation setting up the ambush for the cybermen with the radioactive rods Mm. great he's also good at noticing things so like being like why are they outside yeah do you know i don't know if he's as quick on the uptick as maybe polly is Mm. but he He's not stupid either. No. Do you know he's he's noticing things going on around him. No. The one thing that I didn't like about Ben, yeah, and Polly does this as well. I don't. This is just a writing choice because I don't think they did it in the first sixteen. Certainly, is he's in a room by himself, and he is talking to himself. <laughs> now I don't know if that's just a writing choice to vocalize what's going on inside his head for mm. the audience's benefit but i is it just me or like in previous stories would they just have had him looking around and figuring things out in silence so i think an example of this would be and again to go back to the aztecs when ian is in the 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 tunnel that's flooding mm. he's not speaking every no. everything is everything portrayed is by william russell's acting like the yeah. the fear, the tension, the adrenaline—it's all done with that. Whereas with Ben, it's a—it's an out loud vocalization. No, yeah. two completely different characters, two completely different mentalities mm. towards doing stuff. How many times would you find yourself in your kitchen, you know, having an ongoing monologue about what you need to do for the day, that type of thing? Mm. Well, I know I do. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> though, like if going forward, because you know, one of the things that people have said about classic Doctor Who is that it's very slow. In comparison to yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I see that thing. Like, and that's when we joined that uh, the Facebook group, yeah. I see that conversation coming up an awful lot. Yeah. And someone made, made the point is that unless you're raised on that sort of stuff, and you don't, even, yeah. you don't necessarily need to be from the era in which it was made, as is mm. you know evidenced by this, unless you're raised in that type of stuff, it can be hard to get into. Yeah, but I wonder if that's why they started, because ha- I think Polly does it once as well. 
I think that's why they started... I wonder if that's why they started having him speak out loud is because the silent moments, you know, maybe what was expected on TV was changing Mm. and those silent beats, you know, they decided to fill them. But I kind of wish they kept them silent because it kind of of worked. Uh, But yeah, so that was it for Ben. Yeah. So then we have Polly. Oh, she's a crafty one. She is an absolute (laughs) crafty one. So the reason I say that she's a crafty one is because Polly is smart enough to use people's perceptions of her against them. Yeah. She comes across as this, you know, ditzy blonde, whereas like, you know, oh, I can make coffee. Meanwhile, it's a case of like, you know, now I'm going to ruthlessly spy on all of you. <laughs> and like, it, it, it's great. And like, unfortunately, that, and I saw recent enough, that line is completely taken out of context. Like we we discussed yeah. um, before, this this out of context line gives a negative portrayal to a character that's actually quite intelligent and resourceful. Yeah, I think what people forget is that Polly was a secretary. Yeah. So she is probably well used to being invisible in a room, hmm. but being aware and taking note and whatever. She's used to making herself a non-presence in a room while still doing her job. Yeah. Do you know? Because you imagine with the whole Votan thing, there's probably loads of meetings and she was the secretary. She was working with the professor, but like she was, I imagine, in a lot of meetings just standing off the side taking notes. And mm. so she's used to that. That's her using her history to help further the story. Yeah. Do you know? And Again, you know, I love the fact that, you know, she immediately got that positive reinforcement from Ben being like, you know, work him. You can, you can, you can work him like, do you know, and no question about it. And I wonder if that comes from the fact that like Polly essentially did that to Ben. Yeah. You know, when Polly first met Ben, he was a grumpy guts in a bar. Yeah. And she managed to engage with him and bring him out of himself. And by the end of the evening, they're dancing and they're having fun. They're meeting up for lunch. And like, that's who she is. She's a social person and she has social skills that she uses to her benefit. Yeah. Like also like you know like she's she's just tough in this story. Yeah. Like like she stands up to Cutler, not a bother. She stands up to the Cyberman, not a bother. Um like she's willing to risk her you know life and obviously risk her freedom for looking after the doctor. So she like this is a, again if everything if everything is to go completely uh tits up in the next story mm. we have tr- again three good stories worth of character building for Polly as well yeah i think the one thing with Polly is you know going back to the whole cup of coffee thing and Polly puts the kettle on whatever which i still love um she is a bit screamy here i think that's just something we have to expect from Polly is that she doesn't hide her emotions and that shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing no because as i said um last week on the smugglers is that yeah she screams but she but then she immediately goes into counteraction like so how do i over how can i help oh no how can i how can i overcome or how can i help or how can we overcome so it's as i said it's it's like the barbara thing is that it's that initial shock of what's going on but it's immediately back into problem solving mode then. Yeah. And it's like it's the true line for like, you know, the last three stories. 
so I am really looking forward now to seeing what things are like during the new era that comes along so then we have our story based companion in the form of Barkley not Mm -hmm. Broccoli he's someone else yeah Um, so what did you think of Barkley Um, I think it is great to see someone like like, sorry that character that's a, a scientific character that's a scientist first and foremost and like, despite, you know, the imminent danger to art, it's got to be, we have to look at the safest possible solution with the least amount of backlash. It may not be the fastest solution, but it'll be the safest solution. Yeah. And that goes against, like, it reminds me of the movie Armageddon, where the mm. big asteroid is coming and like the, what was it, the, um, the general in charge is just says, like, why don't we just like launch every nuke we have up there? And someone says, no, that won't work. And it's like, who the hell are you? It's like, well, if, with all due respect, sir, this is the most, this is the smartest man in the United States. You'd be warranted to listen to him. So Barkley is that character. He's the smartest voice in the room. And you need to take a step back to listen to what he's saying. I like him as well because he's very reluctant to give into the pressure of, you know, bullies, be they either Cutler or the Cybermen. Mm. And look, he's, he's, he's willing to help and he's capable as well. So I think, I think he's the type of supporting character that you could have seen joining the crew. Yeah, I think my thing with Barkley is that like from the off, you know, he recognizes. So the doctor comes out and says like, "Oh, I know what this is. I know what you're going to find." And he hands him a piece of paper, and Barkley is distracted. He puts it in his pocket and he goes by and does his job. And then later on, he's like, "That man said that he knew something," and he immediately recognizes. Okay, I'm going to go and ask him for more information. The way a scientist would, as opposed to the way a military person would, who would accuse the doctor of doing something or whatever the case would be. He's like, no, 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 no. He gave me this piece of paper before we knew what was out there. I, I need to listen to him. I think, again, like he doesn't give in easily. I would say he gives in eventually, both to the Cybermen and to Cutler. But there's an important distinction, which is that he doesn't give in until he has assessed the situation. Yeah. Like he's reluctant. He's slow too. Yeah. So the Cybermen could kill everyone. So he eventually does what they ask. Cutler, he realizes very quickly that you know he stood up to Cutler. He presented his argument. But he knows that Cutler will do it anyway. Mm. So he, he would rather be in the chair. And making sure that if it's going to happen he can at least help to control it or control the impact of it or whatever. And then even when he sabotages it, he's still in the chair doing his job. Yeah. Because if the sabotage didn't work, he wants to make sure that he is accounting for everything as it's going through. So yeah, I think he's a, I think he's a great character. A very yeah. solid, good story-based companion. Yeah. Go Barkley. Yeah. Go, go Barkley. Go, 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 Barkley, Barkley. <laughs> so that's it for the companion side of things. And now we'll move on to the villains. So yes. We have, we, have t- we have two villains in this. Yeah. So will we go with the, the lesser villain? Yeah, let's yeah. do that. That's what we cool. usually do. So the lesser villain in this case is Cutler. My first question for Cutler is, what's wrong with the doctor's hair? Is it too long <laughs> for you, General? Is that the problem? I, I get the impression like that Cutler is like... um. He's one of those Vietnam hate flower child type, you know, generals. <laughs> so it's like, get a haircut, you hippie. Wait, so Cutler comes across, like, originally, 
Mm. Like, as we were going through the story, I started painting Cutler with the brush of he's a villain to our heroes, but he's not a villain. Do you know? We, we've had some of those people in the past. Like, we had it, you know, last week with the smugglers where we had uh, Cooper and... Um, the Squire. The Squire, who were villains to our heroes, but they weren't villains in the story itself. Like, they just happened to be doing a bad thing. So initially, I was paid to hit with that brush. Yeah. And then he wanted to go and launch a nuclear Z-bomb and was doing it all for selfish reasons. So I was like, yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm repainting you. You're, you're, you're not that brush. Like, he comes across at the beginning as this typical no-nonsense military leader type. Joe, we've seen it in fucking everything. We've seen it in every TV program that involves the military, be it science fiction based, so like Star Trek and Stargate and Battlestar Galactica. I think with Star in the title. Don't you dare compare him to Hammond. Don't you dare compare him to General Hammond. I did not compare him to Hammond. Don't put words in my mouth. I was actually (laughs) going to compare him before you fucking jumped in to the guy who takes over from Hammond when Mayborn or when the oh, NID blackmails yeah. Hammond and the other yeah. guy comes in and they're going to send a bomb. I was going to compare him to him. I would never, ever <laughs> compare George Hammond to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I got very enthusiastic about that. Yeah, the, po- the, po- the, po- the pointing. The pointing was, like, <laughs> was ridiculous. <laughs> you dare. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, we've seen this type before. You know, the by-the-books military guy, you know shoot first, ask questions, never type Um, in terms of this is the best outcome. I don't know what you're talking about. Waiting around, you know, what are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And again, initially, I felt really bad that his son was the one who went up. Hmm. But then all his reason goes out the window. So if we go back to the example I was going to make with the guy who takes over from Hammond with the NID force him to retire in Stargate SG-1. Great episode, by the way. That guy is on course. He is calm and collected and he knows what he wants to do the whole time. Similar thing, chain of command in TNG. Captain Jericho. By the book, this is the way it is. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Where Cutler goes off the fucking rails (laughs) is when it becomes personal. Because then all that by the bookness goes out the fucking window. (laughs) Yeah. And he even says it, you know, my son is up there. I don't care what you do so long as my son gets back. And that's where he goes from being these Jericho type and the Hammond replacement type to being just a asshole <laughs> yeah. who puts his own needs before And also, he could have killed Ben. Yep. He fucks him off this gangway. We've no idea how far he falls. But Ben is still unconscious. But doesn't it, it, it doesn't, doesn't even care. But it doesn't even need to be like that like the height of the fall. Like it depends on like what way Ben land Ben yeah. lands. But like my thing with Cutler as I have it just here is like, you know, I'll burn this place to the ground in order to save it. <laughs> it was like can't you you can't argue with that logic. Yes, you fucking can. This guy is insane. I was like, my whole purpose is to get my son back. Let's launch a fucking inter- was it interplanetary nuclear bomb. Like he is a stereotype. He is yeah. he is a huge stereotype, but what I would say separates him from uh, Jellico and the guy in SG One yeah. is that 
he doesn't seem to have any bit of rationality to him whatsoever. The doctor says that he can help out with this, right? Okay, you you mistrust the doctor, fair enough. Like, you know, like that, okay, understandable, you know, he, the guy's landed at your base, you know, it's shit's going south, uh, in the South Pole. But, um, at least kind of, like, you know, put your feet up, you know, put him into a room, put your feet up and listen to his story. Because at least then you can kind of figure out whether or not to toss it all away. And it's like this just bullheaded gung ho that I was like, I was, I, that's what I was saying. I was very curious to see which generals you throw out there <laughs> to compare him to. The only, the only excuse I would give to that at the beginning yeah. is they're facing the problem with Glynn and Bluey. Yeah. And needing to get them down. Mm. and that is the fucking task at hand and that's the only excuse i'd give to that behavior at the beginning of the story because he is focused on his people and getting his people back and doing that job yeah that he doesn't have the time or the inclination to pay attention to the rando who he doesn't like <laughs> because it was there but I, but I, the thing is okay if not his own attention you've just told your security chief to just throw him into a room why not interrogate them? Why not interview them? Why not do anything to find out what their story is so that at least you have it, but you don't have to spend your time listening to it? Mm. Um, yeah, so it's just like that. Again, I think he's... I think he's a caricature of the type of character, like, you know, of the uh, like the, um, the Jellicoe and... I'm just going to call him the Silver Fox because he was a bit of a Silver Fox <laughs> in, in, in SG-1. Actually, do you know who he kind of reminds me of? In... TOS, the 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 captain that takes over, you know, for the, the doomsday thing. Uh, oh yeah, 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 more like him. Yeah, I I can see that. He's sort of he's a bit of an overextension caricature of the sort of Starfleet badmirals. Yeah, do you know the bad admirals? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> he's a bit of a he's a bit of an overextension on them. Yeah. Speaking of Star Trek. Yeah. Should we move on to our main villains? Yes, again, we're looking at you, Star Trek. We're looking at you, the estate of Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> so, we love you, Rod. Like, we love you, really. Yeah, we really, <laughs> we really do. Thank you so much for everything that you've contributed to the world of science fiction. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like the, you know, the whole thing. For all intents and purposes, resistance is futile. We've upgraded ourselves to be, you know, superior. We've removed emotions, all that kind of stuff. Now, granted, they're not a hive mind. No, they're not. And they also don't actually say resistance is futile. They say something like resistance is useless or something. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. Like I put in there, for all intents and purposes, resistance is futile. Yeah, but like resistance is pointless. Well, the message is the same. Um, they're just less Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> so, these are our guys that are going to be another long-running villain in Doctor Who history. Okay? Yep. Quite possibly the second most famous villain uh, of all time in terms of Doctor yep. Who. And after being introduced to them, in a more streamlined version. <laughs> Going back and watching them for the first time, it's quite a jarring experience. <laughs> it is. I had never seen this. And um, their design is certainly interesting. They look like, all right, they look like the sort of weird futuristic uh, popcorn maker that like, a, like some weird mad scientist would make. Because it's like they've got like a weird... Imagine Darth Vader's chest piece on steroids that takes up the yep. front part of them. 
they have this weird handlebar flash lamp thing on their head and they're just very blocky now their faces i think are very interesting because the faces are it's just essentially a metallic balaclava yeah. It's a sock. But it's meant to be like a, a it's meant to be like a metallic face shield. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's a sock. It's yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, sock Sorry, face. I'm, I'm ruining I'm ruining the suspension of disbelief. Keep going. Oh no, no, no. No, it's absolutely like look, like Doctor Who has done some amazing things with, you know, household products and clothing to to make memorable villains. Sure what is it, like Terry Nation just like, fell into his kitchen cupboard one day and that's what he came out with. No, so like yeah, like the the face, which is like yeah, it's a sock, but it's meant to be like this metallic face mask type thing, and I thought that was kind of cool. Now their voices are really weird, because, you know, <laughs> like so with the Daleks, it was always you know you will move, you will, whereas with the Cybermen, it's like a case of we are the Cybermen of Mondas, and it's just like oh my god, pick a register and stick with it, <laughs> pick. It is very sing song, and at one point it does sound like one of them is singing. It does. At one it, point. It really does. The interesting thing I like about though is that like the way they speak is they just drop their mouth open. Yeah. And the sound comes out. Mm-hmm. They don't actually vocalize at all. No. With no. their mouth. Obviously in the episodes that exist, you can kinda see the lips behind the mask. Yeah, moving but a like bit. the whole, but they're not but they're not talking, they're just holding their mouth open. Yeah. And close it ever so slightly between sentences and then opening it again yeah. for the next sentence. And sometimes they don't open as wide and stuff like that. That's weird. But like, it's clearly that this is a processed voice. Yeah. Whether it's meant to come from the voice box or not, they're not speaking in the traditional sense. Yeah. And like, it's kind of cool as well like that you see various component parts of them that are still human, like their hands specifically. Because like in the end of episode one, that's the, that's the reveal that these machine looking things they're actually cyborgs yeah um, but and like I like their weapons like you know like the, those cool light cannon type things that they had <laughs> their placement is weird it's like look at my crotch yeah like basically <laughs> what they are is like they're like they stole the headlamp off a, a, like a you know oh, what is it a Toyota Corolla and that's pretty much what they're using um, but it's like I'm I'm invested in them. I'm intrigued by them. I think if they were to come back again, I I'd be up for it. No, I we know that they are coming back again. <laughs> but there's yeah, go on. two things about them I found interesting. Yeah. The first is when they went around asking everyone their name, occupation, and age. Yeah. Because that seems weird. <laughs> yeah. But when you consider <laughs> the fact that they said we will take you to Mondas, yeah, they were clearly trying to identify. Who did they want to convert into Cybermen? Yeah. And who would they leave behind based on age or based on their background and their knowledge? Yeah. Do you know? Because jumping the timeline massively. Yeah. We will get to see what the conversion process looks like. However, we have no idea what it is here other than it's based on the questions. And it's kind of terrifying to think of there's like an age requirement. There's um, like a health requirement, all this type of stuff. How many of their own people were experimented on in Mengele style in order to reach this level of, you know, air quotes, perfection that they're now in? 
so an adventure on Mondas if they ever go back to the past because Mondas is no, no longer there yeah. I think that's going to be a very scary episode if they ever do it yeah the other thing about the Cybermen that I really liked is just their concept because mm. um, a terrifying question yeah. that you pose it's the same question that gets posed by the Borg is if you replace effectively everything that makes someone human does the soul survive well, do you remember, I asked you this question about uh, cloning. That mm. if, you, if you clone someone, are you just a, are you just cloning the meat sack? Or are you cloning what makes... Because like we see it in science fiction, like, you know, or a clone is a complete copy of the person that they're, they've been taken from. Yep. But it's like, is that what actually happens? Like, does what makes... Like, if I was to be cloned, would what, make, would what makes Paddy Paddy transform into the clone? Or it would just be a giant babyish version, which isn't too dissimilar from what I actually am. Uh, <laughs> would it just be like this giant hairy uh, baby? Yeah, and my my answer to you at the time was I had a sort of <laughs> a quote unquote real world answer. Yeah. Um, and then there's the science fiction. The science fiction answer is you can have it be whatever you want. Yeah. Do you know? You can have it be one side gets all of the positive traits and mm. the clone gets all of the negative traits, as we see every time someone gets split in a transporter. Yeah. You can have it be a direct copy, memories and everything, you know, looking at Stargate, you know. The Jack clone in Stargate yeah. was meant to be a complete copy. Yeah. The only difference was that he couldn't be aged up because of a protein um, a marker yeah. that the Asgard put in that whatever. So in science fiction it can be whatever you want. Yeah. If we're to work backwards to science reality. Science fact. <laughs> science fact. You would never clone someone as a fully grown adult. Yeah. You would clone someone, and as as far as I understand the process, and I may be wrong, scientists feel free to correct me, you would have a baby at the end of it. Because mm-hmm. you're taking your DNA and making a new person from it, and that new person is a baby. And at that point, they cease being you because they're going to have their own experiences that make them uniquely them. I think with the Cybermen, because they're upgrading the body, like so, I think so long as the brain is intact, is it, well, now we're getting to the nature of what makes a soul a soul. Is it like your memories? Is it your heart? Is it whatever? The one thing we do know is that when Cybermen begin the process, they remove all emotion. Like with the Daleks, the only emotion that's left is this kind of like, you know, is the negative side of things, is the anger, yeah. is the superiority, is hatred. With Cybermen, there is, no, there is nothing there bar logic so you yeah you could say like they're like a soulless machine because if everything that makes a human brain human has been removed and all that's left is just the cold calculating computing side of humanity is that really human is that person really soulful i don't know one thing that we can definitely be assured of is that kind of like the daleks they make for very interesting character discussion and they've come back multiple times and like just the only doctor that they have never encountered is the third doctor for whatever reason that may have been it was probably just like the writing choice of it well like obviously you know like Paul like Paul McGann's eighth doctor didn't really encounter anyone other than the master but in terms yeah. of like television doctors yeah television doctors uh, wait no Eccleston no Eccleston didn't have them either yeah so yeah in the in the original yeah in the original run up because it was uh, 
Doomsday that brought about them. Yeah. So yeah, in the original run-up, only uh, John Pertwee, the third Doctor, never encountered them. So yeah. like they've like you know when you're looking at twenty six years plus a television history for two races to continue on to be a recurring bad guy and not get stale, in my estimation anyway. Mm. Yeah, they may be overused, but you're still they're not stale because there's always something to evolve them there. Uh, I know I may come to recant that statement this time goes on, <laughs> but. Uh, as a first, like even as I said, going back, it was quite jarring, but yeah. the jarring didn't take away my intrigue into the Cybermen, which is yeah. good. I would agree, and like I said, I think the whole idea of what makes humanity, you know, what what is the difference between a fully organic person and a cyborg, hmm. um, a cybernetic person, it's why the Borg are so interesting. You know, it's why characters like Seven of Nine and Hugh yeah. who regain their individuality and who regain their humanity are so interesting now we said that the Cybermen don't have a hive mind which is the difference yeah. with the Borg but they're still your humanity got stripped away yeah and it's that sort of thing of could you get it back could you turn a Cyberman against other Cybermen the way Polly you know could Polly talk yeah. one of them around to helping them I think if a Cyberman ever does regain its humanity that's going to be a viewing wise a horrifying experience yeah time traveling team come for Doctor Who stay in for metaphysical conversation <laughs> <laughs> no we cannot put this off any longer no we can't we need to discuss William Hartnell the first Doctor yeah no we are going to as we said we are going to have a normal rambling episode for the Doctor on Wednesday but obviously this is the story-based uh, discussion for this particular Doctor. So would you like to go first and get it over on the way with Or do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first, sure. Cool. The thing about the Doctor in this story is I've already mentioned how Bill was missing for episode three. Yeah. His time on screen was limited. Yes. And the things he did was actually quite limited. However, as always with William Hartnell, with the time he had, he delivered. Mm-hmm. He always does. The question I have, and the thing I was wondering about, how early into the adventure did the Doctor realise what was happening to him? Was it before he collapsed? Was it after he collapsed? I think there's even the potential it's before they leave the TARDIS. Yeah. That he knows, the minute that they land, he knows something is... Oh, it's wrong. Yeah. Um, I think for a final outing, and I mentioned how much like William Hartnell didn't want to be disturbed when he was preparing and he really want, very much wanted to get in, in the zone. This is the first Doctor. Hmm. And it is a powerful representation by Bill and you couldn't ask for better from his final story. The only thing that would have made it better would have been, in my opinion, if he'd gotten that last line. Yeah. That would have been good. And if, unfortunately, if William Hartnell hadn't gotten bronchitis and we'd had him for episode three, because unfortunately, his last story on screen that survives, he's not in it. Mm-hmm. His last surviving story is episode three and he's not in it. Yeah. And that's 
That's really sad. It is. But, like, what you, like, we've all been talked about Lewis Cannon, okay? Now, I, the first time I ever watched this was before uh, the animated version had actually come out. Yeah. I, I used to, I watched the true Loose Cannon, okay? And I think one thing that we have definitely discovered true Loose Cannon is that the acting by William Hartnell and company have made the dissociation between not seeing what's going on but hearing what's going on. For me, it's a moot point. Their acting is so good that I'm invested in it I can get into it now I know I made the comment before about like in certain stories I wasn't really into it but those because I knew that they were landmarks landmark stories for companions leaving or knowing what was coming next like a next story so examples of that being The Savages because it was Stephen's outgoing story yep. and because I, I wasn't focused on the story as such but I was just more focused on the acting and then we had The Smugglers which is I knew this was coming next but his performance in episode 4 for as limited as it is, as you said, it's powerhouse. Like, and it's great to see that even though both the actor and the character are, are sick at this time, Hartnell, he gives it socks. And the doctor gives it socks. The doctor refuses, like, without even knowing what that line was, the doctor refuses to give in to what's going on with him until such a time as the danger has passed. Yeah. William Hartnell refused to give in to his illness until such a time as the story was done. Yeah, we had a, co- a couple of months ago now, uh, our friends over at Half Measures had us on their show and they asked us a couple of questions about our favourite aspects of Doctor Who and stuff. Yeah. And one of the questions that they asked was, if you were to give an Emmy or an Oscar or whatever to one of the Doctor actors, yeah. which one would it be? And my pick for the classic series was William Hartnell. Mm-hmm. and now coming to the end of his run I stand by that choice 110% yeah he is such a consummate professional when he's on screen and I don't care how many times he flubbed his lines because he was the doctor 110% but he owned the flubbing of the lines he turned it like he even played tricks on the production staff for fuck's sake with flubbing the lines Um, but he he owned it and it's it's an idiosyncrasy that makes the first doctor the first doctor causing call Ian by the wrong name you know it smells whatever you know like (laughs) that type of thing I sent Uh, it yeah I I sent it like 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 our rambling would probably go on for like I hope it goes on for at least an hour Um, I would love to have I know, I know, again, because they couldn't, unfortunately, trust Bill with the health, which was a shame. But like that, I, I would have loved that line the same way that you would have loved that line. But also some other little bit of an internal monologue to kind of go, like, he, he's exhibiting great worry. Are you worried about what's happening to you? Or are you worried about the scenario that you now find yourself in? Or is it the fact, or is it both bleeding into each other? What's happening to you is affecting the, your ability to help the scenario which is also going to negatively impact your own health. Like, it, it's great. And of the surviving footage that's there from the regeneration, he's defined to the end, which is great, in that wonderful William Hartnell way. And I, like, I've often said that, like, the first Doctor is in my top five favourite Doctors. And I think I had him at number three at the moment. Okay? Until I go back and reassess that he is now he's bumped up into the number two spot 
He just sent for me. And like with Tom Baker's run, like towards the end of his run, unfortunately, it wasn't as good as the start of his run. But that was caused production choices and I suppose Tom's own investment. But and I think something very similar kind of happened here with uh, William Hartnell in the sense of you know he had his golden era of the first sixteen. Then there is the rough era of you know the John Wiles time and the the pairing of uh, Stephen and Dodo as his companions, and it's such a shame that. We, yeah, well, technically we get three stories. Like We get two stories proper, but we get three stories with this new crew. And I want more. And I have only listened, or like, I, I know of one expanded media source that I myself have current, uh, I currently own. It's a book called Ten Little Aliens. And it's the Doctor and it's Ben and Polly together. And I wanted more. I, I just want more, you know? Yeah. And we'll get to it eventually. But yeah. within this story... There technically is more. Yes. Many, 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 many years later. Yeah. During Peter Capaldi's run as the Doctor. Yeah. I have not watched that story because I refused to watch it. I will watch it eventually and will form an opinion of it then. But technically this story feeds into that. But you don't have William Hartnell. No. And it's not the same. No. And like, even though like, you know, we said that he has a small bit of time in the Three Doctors, he was still very sick at that time. Yeah. But he's a consummate professional. And like, I know I made the comment um, during the arc, did it feel like he was phoning it in a small bit? But you rightly pointed out that because the last couple of weeks have been so high-paced, a slower-paced story just seemed to kind of you know appear out of nowhere. And I was like, do you want, actually, on second thoughts, you're right. Yeah. Picking a top three will be difficult picking a, like picking the worst moments will be will be difficult yeah. um but i think we just owe a huge debt of gratitude to william hartnell for what he gave the world yeah i have one final sort of sad behind the scenes comment to make right so again in the dvd there's a special feature of the making of thing and annika looks said that there was no goodbye party for William Hartnell. They filmed the regeneration sequence. He was tired. And he went home. And later on. Herself and Michael Grace finished filming. And they went home. Hmm. He went out with. On screen he went out with a bang. Yeah. But in personal life. He just left. And for someone who. Committed. So much to the show. Who cared about it so much. Who was beloved by fans so much? That makes me really sad. Now, was it a personal choice by him not to make had to have a party? She didn't mention, but her what she said was, they filmed the scene. Patrick went home, obviously, because he was done. Yeah. And Bill was tired, so Bill left. At the end of the day, they finished filming and they all left. Hmm. And that was it. There was, and she said there was no goodbye party. There was no meeting up for drinks, and you know. I've mentioned that I, I don't think he had the same relationship with Annika and Michael that he had with Jacqueline Hill and Carol and Ford and Maureen O'Brien. William Russell. No. And William Russell and everyone. Because like, you get the sense that had he left during their run, it mm. would have been a big to-do, but it just was like, poof, and he's gone. Which which makes me sad. But like, I, I'll tell you one thing, right? There's There's a kind of a trope in Doctor Who fandom over when a doctor leaves I don't like the new guy I don't like him I don't like him I don't like him 
that that started that 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 started no no one thought no fan watching the show thought that he could ever be replaced hmm. although i will say one thing so and again this is sort of from that um documentary on the dvd hmm. while people may not have thought he could be replaced they accepted that the regeneration thing was a part of the character yeah oh yeah, well, yeah. um but they did they did love him like hmm. he was beloved by so many people and it's why it bothers me when in modern who they make him out to be an asshole because yeah. he really wasn't so. yeah because like, that's the one thing that we've discovered over these last like 29 episodes is that at times yes he was an asshole he was a he was a fucking prick but the amazing stuff that the, the first doctor did the character development he had the character interaction he had with so many people far as outshine those fleeting moments of that kind of stuff so we come to the end our final overall discussion of William Hartnell's era of Doctor Who yep so Paddy for this final story what do you think <sighs> lads you never want to see them go do you <laughs> um I really enjoyed this story. I really, really did. Now, I know I commented about how, you know, it was jarring for the, you know, come back from a more advanced form of the Cybermen to come back to the the older, uh, the older style. Doing it in a four-parter uh, is perfect. Like, I don't, I think doing it in six probably would have stretched it. Having him take a back seat for a lot of it was, necess- was necessary, but, like, har- like, I obviously it was necessary for the health reasons for both the character and the actor. So, and I, again, we've talked about like how good Hartnell worked with what he had to do. Mm. Like we've talked about his limited presence in other stories and, you know, that it was annoying. Here, I don't think that argument is the same. Great character growth from Ben and Polly. You know, like not to make it all yep. about William Hartnell. <laughs> but, you know, great, great character moments. Uh, I love the invasion angle. Like I love the story side of things. Plus, look, fuck it, you know, putting anything in Antarctica like you're going to get an automatic buy-in from me you know <laughs> and and again like i think one thing that doctor who does really well and like it's a hallmark of really good science fiction is that you if you're putting humanity against um an alien incursion or an alien menace you gotta highlight the fact that not all humans are going to be on the same team yeah and like like <laughs> I, I I make the the joke sometimes to my friends is like that if you know if an alien menace ever does come along this way we're nowhere near Independence Day level of fucking support you know like we're every every air force in the world all unites we're nowhere near that and I think even in this we have like a really good example of like we have like the general in charge of the installation half your fucking subordinates think you're insane and don't really want to follow you you know we even we even yeah. we even have like you know the secretary the secretary general uh, Wigner is like no we're not using the bomb and it's true like you know you know, word play that you know he uh, uh, Cutler convinces everyone that he's got you know the permission to use the bomb there's so the, the score wise it's a four and the detractors are a small bit of the design of the Cybermen I think is very very clunky and I think we've seen some good designs for other aliens that I think they could have done a small bit more or a small bit better mm. maybe streamlined them a small bit 
because uh, they at times they look like those blocky robots, you know, for like old, old, old toys. Also, one kind of small thing is like because you're putting it as an uh, alien invasion story, I think I would like to see a bit more of a struggle uh, in terms of Cybermen going into various cities. The Cybermen actually storming the base in a sort of like, you know, stormtroopers uh, on the Rebel Alliance uh, blockade runner type thing. No, I obviously know production values can't really do it that much but i think for a car for a doctor leaving this is a, st- a strong strong story because again not everyone's going to get that not every doctor's going to get the luxury of a really good story to finish on so i'm glad that we the first the first was the first for so many things and it's the first for a really good exit story yeah how about you so four out of five is good mm-hmm. one of the things i love about this story is the international characters yeah so i said this in the trivia right so some of these characters aren't actually played by international actors but some of them are this show was created in 1966 now at this point we already have star trek right yep so we've already seen a future that's hundreds of years in the future and what that's going to look like yeah i think star trek star trek is just starting now because this finishes up in 1966 and Star Trek starts in 1966. Star Trek, the original series, has aired by this point. Yeah. So we have the far future mm-hmm. and we have a diverse cast. Yeah. Okay. We have Ahura as communications officer. We have Sulu. We have, you know, the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> we have Scotty. Do you know what I mean? We have a diverse cast. What I like about this and one of the reasons why... I think this is particularly great a Doctor Who story is this was created in 1966 mm-hmm. and it's set in 1986 yeah it's only set 20 years in the future and yet they presented that after man makes it to the moon it becomes an international space organization they deal with Geneva they're working out of the South Pole in Geneva you have French members of staff and Hmm. it just shows what i think we all would have liked to have happened once we accomplished spaceflight which is the world comes together and the key thing is like i mean this is still during the cold war (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) like so to present a future a not so different future Hmm. where it's an international yeah organization for scientific discovery and exploration i love yeah i love that i think it's great i i think it's also like to to that point as well like you know it's always kind of cool that you know when you label something as international you never know what the world's going to be like in the time frame that you're setting it in so putting under the global thing of uh, international is the ideal it's it's not like a sort because like, you could say that it hides the conflict of the day but it actually presents in a sort of way that we can get past this conflict yeah uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing that i will come back to in the future when we come to unit yes which is perhaps not as diverse as it should be (laughs) in some of the earlier stories so for me i thought that was great in terms of the story itself so we have that interesting diverse casting which i loved Mm -hmm. but then on top of that we have a conceptually scary and interesting villain yeah in the cybermen you know there's a reason why the Borg works so well in Star Trek. It's the same reason why the Cybermen work so well here. Because they used to be human. And I love the fact that... I don't know if it's just... 
a costume thing where they couldn't find something to do with their hands. But I love the fact that they keep their hands human. Yeah. Because it sort of just adds that chill, even with this weird clunky outfit. We got some particular showcasey moments for our companions. I personally particularly loved the extra character development for Ben that we discussed in terms of mm-hmm. I had no choice. Yeah. I, I love that. And as a final story for William Hartnell, he he, he delivered as he always does. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And I think it's kind of fitting in some ways that his doctor changed because he got old. He wore out his body. Yeah. Rather than what we're going to see down the line. Yeah. Do you know, William Hartnell did the show for as long as he could. And his doctor stuck around for as long as he could. Yeah. No one... The doctor didn't die and come back. No one shot him. It was none of that. It was just the natural end of his life. Yeah. In that form. So, for me, with all of that, I gave it a 4.5. It lost the half a point because of the limited use of the doctor in certain episodes. But that's excused by Bill being sick. And the clunky design of the Cybermen, I think, you know, they they are going to refine it a lot more going forward. But for an initial outing, it's a bit, it's a bit clunky for me. Yeah, uh, no, for, like I think anything below a four, it does like in my for if if either of us had given us below a four, I think it would have been a bit of a disservice to the story. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, like um, yeah, like it's it's a really really good story, and it ends one journey, but it starts another one. I think. And obviously, because of the nat- and because of the nature of serial- serialized storytelling, this is actually in the middle of a season. Yeah. So we're we're th- we're only two episodes, two stories into season four. Season tr- uh, episode three, or Jesus, story three of season four, is going to be a brand new Doctor with a brand new, you know, well, we don't know what it's actually going to be, do we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we're not we're not spoiling anything for people. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, this is the end of the William Hartnell era. And we hope everyone that has been with us on this journey has actually really liked it. Now, not to fear though, uh, we will be starting the next part of this ongoing saga in a couple of weeks. So on Wednesday, we'll have our normal rambling in the TARDIS for looking back at the Doctor with his uh, strengths, weaknesses, uh, high points and low points. But after that, Trish, why don't you let the people know what is in store? Yeah, so after our rambling on Wednesday, uh, Paddy and I are going to take a small break <laughs> <laughs> from weekly reviewing of Doctor Who. Um, it's coming up to the Christmas season. We're going to take a small break from reviewing every week. However, we do have some very special things in store for you. Over the next three weeks, we're going to have three special ramblings that will be shared on a Monday as opposed to the usual Wednesday. Yes. And those three ramblings are going to be an adventure in space and time. Yeah, which is the docudrama we discussed earlier on. And for that episode, we will actually be joined by our friends Dan and Paul from the Half Measures podcast. Uh, we'll be discussing the docudrama with them as well as having a general chat about podcast life. Yeah. And the two non-canon, alternate visibility, Terry Nation created Dalek movies, Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion Earth 
2150 AD, whatever the fuck that title is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daleks Invasion or 2150 AD, which had been requested by Dan and Paul earlier on in the year and also by John Champion from the Mission Log podcast, uh, who, along with his co-host uh, Norman Lowe, uh, were a huge help in me and Trisha getting this podcast off the ground. So, guys, thanks very much for everything you did for us throughout the year. We will then return on the 1st of February. Yeah, the first of February will be the next episode, The Power of the Daleks. Sorry, Power Darlings. of the Daleks. Daleks. <laughs> I went very, the first story I went with very Patrick weird Turton. there. Yes. <laughs> no, the first story with Patrick Triton, which yeah. is, <laughs> as you said, Power of the Daleks. Power of the Daleks. Oh, please don't take the piss out of me uh, in terms of uh, Patrick Triton. <laughs> I'll do it once. Okay. <laughs> and, then we'll, and then we'll never go. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah. So- talk to you all on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, see. Bye. Bye.